Hey everybody, welcome to Your Why Is Your Way. Today we're talking about your anger, talking about my anger. Anger can be a good thing, can be a bad thing, can be constructive or it can be destructive. Have you seen somebody use their anger in constructive ways? Of course we have. We've seen people get angry about things that are going on in this world and they create justice. But we've also seen people who, for whatever reason, probably selfish reasons for the most part or whatever is going on, use their anger in destructive ways, even to themselves, like hitting the wall, breaking their hand, whatever it might be. So anger can be constructive or destructive. Jesus used his anger in constructive ways. The Bible says we should be angry and sin not. So how do we use our anger? Today, what we really want to focus on is, is how does God solve problems? And anger is going to come into play as we go through this message about the flood. And let me say this, this message, I've been waiting to do this message for many months. I've just been thinking and meditating on these scriptures, Genesis 6 through 9, which are the chapters we're going to cover, and just thinking, thinking, thinking about this. So this is a really, really good time for us to have a Q&A because it might spark some questions in you. So tonight on Facebook, Grace's Facebook site, we're going to do a Facebook Live. We're going to do a Q&A because that's how we learn. We grow by discussing and thinking and meditating, exchanging ideas and asking questions back and forth, back and forth. So if we really want to connect with God and we want to let his living word just fill up every fiber of our being, we come together and we talk. So I really want to encourage you big time to please come out for tonight's Facebook Live at 7 p.m. And to please email me. So as we're going through this message today online, put an email to me as maybe things come up in the scriptures that spark it, john.slidetrygrace.org. And I'll use that tonight to get us going in this conversation. So your why is your way. Let's dig into this verse by verse. We're going to take some highlight verses in chapters 6, 7, and 8 of Genesis here. So Noah, Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And notice this phrase. It is so important. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Please remember that phrase. We're going to come back to it in a moment. It is extremely important. Verse 7. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. God is saying total annihilation. And here's the interesting thing, everybody. If you read carefully through these chapters, you will see in this story that God doesn't say just one time, I'm going to wipe out all humanity. He doesn't say it just two times. If we miss it the first and the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth, God says it seven times. Complete and utter annihilation. Everybody dies. Men, women, children were wiping off the face of the earth all people, verse eight, but Noah, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Now, why? Why would Noah, this lone man, find favor in the eyes of God? Well, Bible tells us Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. So if you're going to blow up a sports team and you're going to start over with a superstar, Noah's the guy. He's the guy you want to start with. We're going to blow, God says, I'm going to blow up the whole world. 
I'm going to start over with the perfect guy. I'm going to start over with the right guy. I'm going to start over with the righteous guy so that everything gets back to the way it's supposed to be. Verse number 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. There's the problem. Violence. Violence is the problem. God says it here. God's going to say it again. This is the focal point. The problem with the world is violence. It's full of violence. Verses 13 and 14. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. So God tells us right there, I'm going to annihilate everybody because there's violence. I'm going to unleash violence to a degree that's never, ever been experienced before in the Bible, before or after the flood, because there's violence on the earth. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark. God says to Noah, there's a tremendous amount of violence, so I'm going to unleash massive amounts of violence. Build an ark. And Noah, we'll see here, Exactly, he does exactly as God says. God speaks, Noah does. God speaks, Noah does. That's what happens here. Verse 22. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. So God gives Noah a long list of things to do. Boom, Noah goes into action, he does everything. Chapter seven, verse one. The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family. Verse five. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded. So you have God speaking, Noah doing, he has no independent actions in chapter six, no independent actions. He is 100% obedient. God speaks, he does, there's no independent action. Chapter eight, verse number one. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now we need to talk about this right here because there is a very strong connection between the creation story of Genesis 1 and the flood story in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. Very strong connection. So as the Bible begins, chaotic waters. There's injustice, there's violence. That's what the chaotic waters represent, right? That's how the world was created. And God speaks, literally a wind blows and begins to blow back the chaotic waters. Flood story, flood happens, chaotic waters everywhere, injustice, violence, and the word of God, the wind of God begins to blow it all back. So strong, strong connection. This is a recreation story. It's a divine reset. God has wiped the map totally clean. We've got eight people on ark, Noah's righteous family right there with him, and God is going to start over again with the right person. We've gotten rid of all the wrong people and now we've got the right person and we've wiped everything clean. Noah is the first male born after the death of Adam. Restart. There are 10 generations between Adam and Noah and between Noah and Babel. Perfect match. Very balanced right there. In the middle of all that, you have Noah and you have a recreation story. The phrase, be fruitful and multiply, which is used in the creation story, is used in the flood story. All comes together. There are six increments of time in Genesis chapter one, the six days of creation. And in the flood story, there are also six increments of time. The first is seven days. And then the next thing that is mentioned is 40 days. And then there's 150 days. And then there's 40 days. And then there's seven days. And finally, the sixth increment of time, there's another another seven days. 
They are so clearly tied together at the hip. Now, God speaks and Noah does. I said that a moment ago. God speaks in Genesis 1 and God does things. God speaks in the flood story and Noah does things. What's going on there? We have this greater understanding of a partnership with God. God doesn't speak in the flood story and poof, here's the ark to get on. No, Noah makes the very instrument that leads to his family's salvation. There is a partnership with there. God is speaking something to us that is extremely important here. There's an old saying, get down on your knees and pray as if God is the only hope. Get up from your knees and serve God as if you are the only hope that you have. There is a partnership there. God didn't poof, make this instrument, make this ark, and Noah just boards it. No, no, God speaks. Noah builds. We have to participate. There is a divine partnership. Now, recently I listened to a podcast with Simon Sinek. He is the why guy, and we're in a series called Your Why is Your Way. What can we learn from this? We're trying to figure out our purpose. We're trying to figure out how to move forward to be the people that we really want to be, to live with purpose and live with inspiration. Now, Simon Sinek said this. He said he investigated AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. He's like, this is a fantastic organization. As a side note to this, he didn't say this. I will tell you this. You look at the history of AA, built on the principles of Jesus Christ, built on the Bible, built on the gospel. However you want to put it, it comes straight out of the Bible. Here's what Sinek says. He says, if you need something, then you need to go get it. So in other words, in AA, what you need is you need help with maintaining your sobriety. And so you need to help somebody else maintain their sobriety. And he says it this way. He says, this is what we need to learn. If you need something in life, you need to help somebody else get it. There is the great and grand principle and it comes straight out of the scriptures. So he says this, if you need a great job, how are you gonna get a great job? You need to help somebody else get a great job. And then Sinek says this, quote, he says, service is the thing. Now, volunteer sign-up. We're doing a volunteer sign-up right now. Shameless plug. Volunteer sign-up. Why do we do it? Just because we want people to work? Just because we need you to take your precious time and do more? No, 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 no. Listen, people go to church. People, you, you're here online today because you want to encounter God. You want to experience God. You want to have a life-transforming experience with God. How will you get it? Well, according to the Bible and according to this great why man, Simon Sinek, the way you get it is you help somebody else get it. So you serve in such a way, you serve God's kingdom, Jesus' church, you serve in order to provide a place to set a table for somebody to experience the life-transforming work of Jesus Christ, to have an encounter with God. And that is the way that you will set the table for you to have that life-changing encounter with God. Far too often, people say, you know what? I'm looking for God. I'm looking for God. I'm looking for God. And they'll go to church. And here's the number one way that I hear people who say to me, I'm just, I feel stuck. I feel spiritually stuck. And I want to encounter God. I just want to feel alive. I want to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. If I'm not getting at this church, I'm just going to go over to the next church and then the next church and then the next church and the next church. That's not a biblical way. If you've been doing that, you should stop doing that. Instead, what you should do is help other people experience it. Set the table for other people to experience the life-transforming work of the Holy Spirit because that's how it happens. That's what the Bible says. That's what AA teaches. And that's what Simon Sinek, the great why man of all this research he does, he says, yep, that's what works. So it's really important. Okay, everybody, let's 
just slow down now and let, let's try to break some really important things down. Again, the question for the day is, how does God solve problems? And since we're made in the image of God and God is all-knowing and all-wise, should we not also attempt to solve problems the exact same way that God solves problems since we're called to be like God? So how does God solve problems? This is what I'd like to do. I'd like to take a look at the way that mainstream American Christianity has interpreted the flood story. I've been to Bible college. I've been to seminary. I grew up in church. I have read a lot from the most popular, best-selling Christian writers, preachers, teachers to try to take a look at how does the majority of Christianity, mainstream majority of Christianity, interpret the story of the flood. And that's what I'm going to do right now. So they have the flood and then Noah disembarks the ark. He comes off and the first thing he does is sacrifice. And the way that I've been taught and so many of the bestsellers, most popular teachers will say is that Noah is giving gratitude to God, thanking God. He's worshiping God there in those very first few moments. And then God says he's going to make a covenant. God says that humanity is filled with evil from its very earliest days. So God will never, ever again destroy the earth. And then we have the rainbow. And then sometime later after that, we see that Noah plants a vineyard. He gets drunk, he gets naked, and he gives a curse. There again, you see the similarities. Adam has three sons. Noah has three sons. Adam's in the garden where he disobeys, where he's naked, he's ashamed, and there's a curse. Noah's in a garden, he plants a garden, he disobeys, he gets drunk, he gets naked, he gets ashamed, and he pronounces a curse. And in this case, Noah doesn't curse his son, Ham, he curses his grandson. Like it's even a greater amount of anger that Noah had for his son. He didn't just want his son to be cursed, but he wanted to curse his grandson. See, nothing hurts more. I, you can, you can curse me and I'll hate that, but you'll hurt me even deeper if you curse my children. So is there something more that we can see here? And here's, here, here's another sub question to the big question. How does God solve problems? Is there a more biblically consistent way to interpret the flood story to rightly divide God's word? I just put that out there for your consideration. Again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. God brings, Jesus brings all things together. He holds people who have different ways of looking at the scripture. It is okay. You don't, you don't have to subscribe to what I'm getting ready to present. It's okay. The flood can be a global annihilation. I grew up with that belief my entire life. It's an outpouring of violent wrath upon the world. It is okay. But there is another way to look at this, and it might be more biblically consistent. It might be, but I put it out there just for your consideration. Again, that's why I encourage you to go on our Q&A tonight on Facebook Live. That's why I want to say every single person involved in a community group in Grace Community Church, you should have these rich discussions. God wants us to use our minds to stimulate our thinking about these great biblical truths. Again, the story of Noah is absolutely magnificent. And if it's rightly applied to our lives, 
can end up in the salvation of our world. So we should talk about this. Now, here we go. The first independent acts. That's why I made a big deal a few moments ago about God speaks, Noah does. There is no independent acts by Noah. And then all of a sudden, you get to the point where Noah is now independently acting. What does righteous Noah do when he starts acting on his own? Well, Genesis chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark, and he sent out a blank. I'm not going to tell you what bird he sent out. What bird did he send out first? Chat it up online. What do you, what do you think? Don't, don't grab a Bible. Don't Google it. What do you think is the very first bird that Noah sent out? So this is his first independent act. He makes a window in the ark and then he sends out a bird. And what is that bird? If you said dove, you're incorrect. That is not the first bird he sent out. The first bird he sent out was a raven. And what's interesting about a raven, a raven is a meat eater. A raven eats by violence. They actually kill things. They do a violent act and they eat. And they say this, he's, the scripture says this, this raven goes out and it's just constantly, can't find, it's just circling. We're not told it goes out, comes back, we're told that it's just back there. It's, ro- it's out there, just roaming, 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 looking for meat, looking. So it's very interesting. The very first thing that Noah does is he sends out a bird of violence, a bird of violence, okay? In Genesis chapter one, we are told this, that God gave us the plants and the trees and the fruit to be our diet. It was a non-violent diet. You call it a vegetarian diet, call it whatever you want, but in the beginning, Genesis chapter one, the end of Genesis chapter one, God says, here's what your diet is. It's a non-violent diet diet. And God says to Noah, when he goes on there, he says, take all the food that you need to store it. Also a non-violent diet. So what was happening on the ark is there was no bloodshed. There was no violence. It was a non-violent diet. The lion was laying down with the lamb and humans were getting along with animals. Everybody, this was a microcosm of the garden. That's what the ark was. It was a utopia where there was nothing but peace and harmony as Isaiah prophesied. There's coming a day when you'll beat your swords into plowshares and the lion will lay down with the lamb and there's nothing but peace and harmony. And human beings, it's like Dr. Doolittle, they're just getting along with the animals and there's peace and harmony and nobody's eating each other. They're not killing. There's no shedding of blood. There's no violence. That's what the ark was like. That's what the ark was like. Now, Genesis chapter eight, verses 15 to 17. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, very specific, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, all the creatures that move along the ground so they can do what? So they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and they can increase in number. So Noah, here's how I want you to come out. I want you to come out with your wife. You went in with your sons, and your wives trailing behind you and, and your son's wife trailing behind you. But here's the way I want you to come out. Direct command, Noah. I want you to come out with your wife right with you because the family unit, because equality between male and female is really important. I'm going to rebuild this world with a family and a family that's structured the right way. Not your wife trailing behind. No, no, right there, right beside you, equal with you. That's the way you're to come out. And the animals, they're to fill the whole earth. I want them to, I want them to fill the earth. That's the way I want you to disembark Noah. 
So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his son's wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds. Everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Noah, did you catch that? Directly defies the order of God. God says, Noah, before the flood, you entered the ark the way the world was operating, the bad way, because you entered with your sons and the women trailing behind. But no, here's how I need you to, to leave the ark after the flood. I need your wife to be right by you, by your side, equal. I'm going to rebuild this world with equality and on a family, husband and wife together, not the women trailing behind it. What does Noah do? Directly defies the order. He's got the women trailing behind. That's pre-flood stuff. Righteous Noah, the one perfect guy, is reverted back to the way things were before. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord in taking some of all the clean animals, plural, and the birds, plural. He sacrificed burnt offerings, plural, on it. Why did Noah build an altar? Well, the way I was raised, the only way to look at this is Noah was so thankful to God. He was worshiping God. But I want you to remember, everybody, is that Noah has been on this ark a, a microcosm of utopia, the lion laying down with the lamb, this nonviolent diet. Like Genesis 1, I give you the plants and the fruits and the trees and all this to eat, but a nonviolent diet. And now they're on the ark and everybody's friends. It's Isaiah, the lion laying down with the lamb, beating the, the, the swords into plowshares. It's utopia. These are his friends. They're all getting along. There's been no bloodshed on the ark. And the first thing he does when he gets off the ark is he kills his friends. God says, let them multiply. And he begins to destroy them. He's defying God. He's shedding blood. And his first defining act after exiting the ark is an act of violence. The very reason we had the flood in the first place was violence. And Noah now, righteous Noah, perfect guy Noah, blameless guy Noah, is recreating the world in an act of violence. We have gotten ourselves nowhere, everybody, nowhere. Now, verse 21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans even though every inclination in the human heart is evil from childhood. Never again. God, I mean, this really takes you off balance here. Like, wait a minute, God. You killed everybody because this was your way to solve the big problem. Shouldn't you be saying, instead of, I'll never do this again, shouldn't you say, hey, we're just going to do this on a regular basis because... Before the flood, every inclination was evil. After the flood, every inclination is evil. We're just going to do this like every seven years, every 700 years, whatever the amount of time is. We're going to do this on a regular basis. And yet God says, this didn't work. I did it to get rid of the evil and the violence in the world. After the flood, Noah's just got off the ark, hasn't really had time to do hardly anything except for this violent act of sacrifice, Right? And God says, oh no, it's evil all the time. It seems like God is saying, all-knowing, all-powerful God, this didn't work. This didn't work. So we're stuck with this. Either God unleashed massive amounts of violence to the tune that our world has never seen before and failed at it, or maybe, possibly, we could be failing 
at our interpretation of the text. Maybe, possibly, maybe the most biblically consistent way to understand how God deals with problems is to say that is the human way to attack, to threaten, to, to be violent. And then you're going to spread my gospel good news, which is really what this is about, through force, through threat, through violence, through judgment. Right? You're going to go to hell instead of God's way. Maybe God is saying this is humanity's way. This is human nature way of dealing with problem, but it's not my way. Maybe God is saying that way will absolutely never work. It simply won't work. Listen. God was really clear. If you didn't hear God the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, the sixth time, God said it seven times. I got rid of everybody. I got rid of all the wrong people. I cleared the deck and I started over with one guy, the perfect guy. I blew the whole team up and started with a superstar. This guy is righteous. He's holy. He's my guy. God says he's righteous. I'm going to recreate the world and it's going to be awesome. And then God says nothing changed. So maybe it is human nature. What God is instructing us here, the wisdom from God in this magnificent story is to say your human nature is to solve problems a certain way, but it's not my way of solving problems. And you need to know that your way of solving problems won't get you anywhere. You'll be right back where you started from. There is a better way because we think in our minds, in our humanity, if we can just get rid of those people our world be the kind of world that it's meant to be. It'll be a better place. If we just get rid of those Republicans, the world is going to be better. No, no, wait a minute. Not, it's not the Republicans. If we just get rid of the Democrats, then, then our world's going to be a better place. That's not going to work either. No, no, no. We got to get rid of the Muslims. No, 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 not the Muslims. The Jews. Let's get rid of the Jews. No, Christians, but not just any Christians. Let's get rid of the conservative hardline evangelical Christians because they are messing up the whole world. Let's get them out of here. No, no, not them. Let's get rid of the liberal Christians, the ones that water down the gospel, those that say the Bible is not inerrant and infallible. If we just get rid of them, our world is going to be the kind of place that God loves, that God wants to build. If we just get rid of the atheist, if we get rid of the atheist, the world is going to be a better place. If we can just get rid of the gays. No, not the gays. Let's get rid of the homophobes. If we just get rid of them, our world's going to be a better place. If we get rid of the pro-lifers. No, no, not the pro-lifers. We got to get rid of the abortionist. If we get rid of the abortionist, our world will be the kind of place that it was originally intended to be. We could get rid of all the communists, socialists, capitalists, we could get rid of all the Americans, the Chinese, the Russians, the Japanese. If we get rid of all of them, God says, and you did seven times over in the scriptures. We got rid of all of them and you ended up at the same place you started. God is saying, that's not my way. That's your way. And your way won't work. I have a better way, which we'll talk about next week. Everybody, here's the question I'd like you to sit with this week. Here's the question I'd like you to pray over and to discuss in community groups and to meditate on God's magnificent word and draw in, soak in all that wisdom. How does God solve problems? What is the most biblically consistent way to interpret how God solves problems? Because whatever way God solves problems, we should probably 
solve problems just like God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your magnificent word. It gives us everything that we need to turn our lives and to turn our world around. In Christ's name, amen.